From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about dirty work and the people who do it. The low-income workers who do our most ethically troubled jobs. A.L. Press will explain. His new book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. But first, controlling the police. What is to be done? For that, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. He's written more than 200 law review articles, and he's a contributing writer for the opinion section of the LA Times. He's also written op-eds for the Washington Post, the New York Times, just in the last couple of months. National Jurist Magazine named him the most influential person in legal education in the United States. He frequently argues appellate cases, including the Supreme Court. He's the author of 14 books, and now he's got a new one out, it's called Presumed Guilty, and it's terrific. We reached him today in Berkeley. Erwin, welcome back. Thank you, John. It's wonderful to talk with you. Thanks for the kind words. I think we all remember the summer of 2020, which saw the largest protest movement in American history, the Black Lives Matter protests about police violence against people of color, 10,000 demonstrations in hundreds of cities and towns, lasting for weeks and months, 15 million Americans participating. And that inspired hundreds of proposals for changing the police and the prisons, ranging from abolishing both of them to training the police differently to shifting many of their tasks to more qualified people. But you say the problem is not just racism in law enforcement. Much of the blame belongs somewhere else. Where is that? I think the Supreme Court is responsible for so many of the problems we have with the policing in the United States, including racialized policing. The reality is throughout American history, the Supreme Court has empowered the police. It has not enforced the constitutional provisions that were meant to check the police. So let's start with the simplest issue, the one that opens uh, your book, Presumed Guilty, the police killing people with chokeholds. Back in 2014, Eric Garner told the New York police who had a, him in a chokehold, quote, I can't breathe. Six years later in 2020, George Floyd told the Minneapolis cop the same thing. Chokeholds have been challenged for decades. We record our show in L.A., which has been a center of litigation going back at least to the early 1980s. Uh, tell us about Adolph Lyons, whose challenge went all the way to the Supreme Court. Adolph Lyons was a 24-year-old black man in Los Angeles who was stopped by police wearing a burnout taillight. An officer ordered Lyons out of his car. The officer slammed Lyons' hands above his head under the roof of the car. Lyons complained that the keys that he was holding were cutting to the skin of his palm. The officer then administered a chokehold on Lyons and rendered him unconscious. Lyons awoke, urinated and defecated. He was spitting blood and dirt. He was given a traffic citation and allowed to go. He sued the Los Angeles Police Department in the city of Los Angeles, seeking an injunction to stop officers from using the chokehold, except if necessary, protect the officer's life or safety. The Supreme Court ruled five to four that Lyons could not sue for an injunction. The court said Lyons could not show that it was likely that he personally choked again in the future. The court said, person who wants an injunction has to show a likelihood of future personal injury. 
So even though the chokehold was unconstitutional, no one ever could sue to stop its use because no one's ever going to be able to prove that he or she is going to be choked in the future. Had the Supreme Court ruled differently, Eric Garner, George Floyd wouldn't have been choked. Many others wouldn't have died. So let's talk about rights that the founding fathers were very concerned about rights of the accused. The fourth Fifth and Sixth Amendments provide protections for people accused of crimes. Tell us about them. Sure. The Fourth Amendment limits when the police can stop, detain, search a person. Meant to be only if there's probable cause. And generally, there's got to be a warrant from a judge. But the reality is the Supreme Court has made it that the police can stop virtually any person, anytime and then subject them to a search. There was a case in 1996 that I discussed in the book, Wren versus the United States, involved some undercover police officers in D.C. who said a car was stopped at a stop sign an unusually long amount of time, 25 or 30 seconds. And the officers decided then to follow the car. In D.C., undercover police officers aren't supposed to enforce traffic laws, but they saw the car turn without a signal, pulled the car over for that, ordered the driver and the passenger out, searched the car for drugs. There's no doubt that the traffic stop was just a pretext to search the car for drugs. But the Supreme Court said it didn't matter. So long as the police have reasonable suspicion a traffic law has been violated, the police can do this. Well, the reality is if the police follow any driver for about 15 minutes, they'll observe the driver go a minute over, mile over the speed limit, or change lanes without a turn signal, or my favorite, not stop quite long enough at the stop sign. They can order the driver and passengers out, and they can do a search. It's why it's not hyperbole to say that the police really can stop and search any of us at almost any time. The Fifth and Sixth Amendments also provide protections for people accused of crimes. The Fifth Amendment, for example, has the privilege against self-incrimination. The Supreme Court famously in 1966 in Miranda versus Arizona said, when police are questioning somebody in custody, it's inherently coercive. And yet the reality is the Supreme Court has not provided protections against coercion. And in fact, the Supreme Court has approved things like the police tricking people into confessing. The police can say to somebody, we found your DNA at the scene, even though it's a lie. And if you confess to us, it'll go easier on you. Or the person you were with has confessed and blamed it on you. It'd be easier on you if you confess too. All of that, the Supreme Court has said, is permissible. So the police are allowed to lie to you when you are being interrogated. This comes after they tell you that you have a right to remain silent and that you have a right to an attorney. Everybody knows from watching TV, you have a right to remain silent. You have a right to an attorney. Surely the Supreme Court enforces violations of those rights. No. There's a case that I discussed in the book where the police were questioning somebody and said, if you want a lawyer, we can't provide you one until you're tried in court. That is flat out wrong and it's against the law. But the Supreme Court allowed the confession to come in, even though the person was told there's no right to a lawyer. Or a very famous case I discussed in the book, police were questioning somebody for almost three hours, and the person was completely silent. 
And after about two hours and 45 minutes, the officer said to the person, do you believe in God? And he gave a one-word answer, yes. They said, do you pray to God? One-word answer, yes. Will you pray to God for forgiveness for these murders? He said, yes. That was the key evidence that led to his conviction. And of course, under Miranda versus Arizona, you have the right to remain silent. He exercised that by being silent. And yet the Supreme Court said he waived his rights and could be convicted. And what's the Sixth Amendment? The Sixth Amendment protects people when they're tried in court. And one very important aspect of the Sixth Amendment, but it also relates to due process under the Fifth Amendment, concerns how police conduct identification procedures, like the lineups we see on TV shows or in movies. The work, especially of the Innocence Projects, have shown that many innocent people have been convicted because of inaccurate eyewitness identifications. In fact, a very large percentage of the people who have been exonerated because of DNA evidence turns out were convicted because of erroneous eyewitness identification. And we know from social psychologists that cross-racial eyewitness identifications are particularly flawed. People are not good at identifying those of other races. Since 1986, and I picked that because when William Rehnquist became Chief Justice, through today, there's only been one Supreme Court case that's even dealt with the issue of eyewitness identification, and that came down on the side of the police. And so the result is we have police procedure that we know that's proven to lead to the conviction of innocent people, and the Supreme Court has completely ignored the problem. Now, there are cases where the police departments conclude that their members have engaged in misconduct, and that creates the opportunity for remedies from, for the victims. If the police violate your rights, you have the right to compensation. It's a big part of criminal law practice. The city of L.A. paid $6 million to victims of police violence in 2019. In 2016, the city of Cleveland agreed to pay $6 million to a single family. The family of Tamir Rice, that 12-year-old boy who was shot and killed by a police officer in a park in 2014. Surely the Supreme Court has helped victims of egregious police misconduct win this kind of compensation. Just the opposite. The Supreme Court has developed doctrines that make it very difficult to sue, that make the instances that you refer to truly the exception. To start with, the Supreme Court has said that some government officials, including police officers, at times have absolute immunity. That means they can never be sued for money damages. A police officer who testifies in court perjuriously, lies under oath, and it leads the conviction of an innocent person, cannot be sued for money damages. So even if the police officer lies, it leads to a conviction of an innocent person, and the person spends years in prison, the police officer can't be sued for money damages. The victim is out of luck. But apart from where there's absolute immunity, all other government officials, when they're sued for money damages, have what's called qualified immunity. And it's been interesting, someone who's taught about qualified immunity for over 40 years, to see it now become part of the popular discourse. The number of times that I've given speeches to non-lawyers, they ask me questions about qualified immunity. Qualified immunity means that a police officer or any government officer may be liable only if the officer violates clearly established law that every reasonable officer should know. The Supreme Court has said 
there has to be a prior case on point that makes the conduct unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court has said, and I'm quoting verbatim, qualified immunity protects all but the plainly incompetent police officer. Qualified immunity functionally is often the same as absolute immunity. Well, your book, Presumed Guilty, reminds us that there was a time when the Supreme Court set limits on police violence and police conduct. This was a time when I was a kid growing up and I learned to respect and admire the Supreme Court. That was the Warren Court starting in the mid-50s. A lot of us grew up thinking of the Supreme Court as the place you get justice because of the Warren Court. Remind us what the Warren Court did on all these questions. The Warren Court began in 1953, as you said, and continued to 1969. But there was actually only a liberal majority on the Warren Court from 1962, when Arthur Goldberg replaced Felix Frankfurter, until 1969. Those seven years were a time when the Supreme Court, unlike any era in history, did seek to control the police. Examples, Miranda versus Arizona that we talked about was decided in 1966. It says that police have to give the warnings that you refer to for questioning somebody in custody. Or Gideon versus Wainwright in 1963, led to the famous book and movie Gideon's Trumpet, a person being tried for a crime in state court with a possible prison sentence has to provide an attorney, including a state paid for one, person can't afford one. Or a less well-known case, in United States versus Wade in 1967, the court said after somebody has been indicted, when there's a lineup procedure, the suspect has the right to have an attorney present to make sure the police aren't being unduly suggestive. But John, even the Warren Court gave in to public pressure. One of the worst Supreme Court cases in terms of leading to racialized policing was a Warren Court decision in 1968. Terry versus Ohio. It said that police can stop somebody, frisk somebody, without needing to have probable cause. It involved a white police officer in Cleveland seeing two black men walking back and forth down a public sidewalk. Just for doing that, he stopped them, frisked them, found they had guns. And the Supreme Court eight to one said it was constitutional for the police to do that. And the eight included Earl Warren, William Brennan, Thurgood Marshall, and the other liberal justices. Well, your book leads to an unavoidable conclusion when it comes to police misconduct, police violence, police violating people's constitutional rights. We are not going to get justice from the courts. And we know that in the Senate, Republicans will block any new federal laws that, for instance, are currently proposed in the House right now. So what can we do? It's interesting I signed the contract to write this book in January 2019. In early June of 2020, after the tragic death of George Floyd, my editor got in touch and said, how soon can you finish this? <laughs> yes. And I turned the manuscript in at the end of October of 2020. And when I wrote the last chapters, I was so optimistic that all of the attention on police misconduct would lead to meaningful reform. A bill had been introduced and passed the House that would have instituted many important changes, including prohibiting police from using the chokehold. But as you say, it's stalled in the Senate because of the filibuster. But state legislatures can adopt reforms. The California legislatures just passed a bill that would keep police officers from being able to go to one department or another when they get discharged from misconduct. 
and in essence would create a registry of police officers and allow them to be decertified. That's an important change. Cities, police commissions can bring about changes. Some have on their own prohibited the use of the chokehold by officers. The Los Angeles Police Commission has done that. Other cities can do that. Some cities in North Carolina adopted a policy that when police search based on consent, they have to get written agreement. And they found a tremendously decreased consent searches. And to be honest, police lying about having had consent when it didn't exist. Cities can do that. State Supreme Courts can interpret state constitutions to provide protections where the U.S. Constitution doesn't. And there is a federal statute that allows the Justice Department to sue when there's a pattern and practice of police violation of civil rights. That was used successfully to bring about some really important changes in the LAPD and in some other cities. And we need the Justice Department to use that tool. You and I both live and work in California, America's most populous state, America's state most democratic state where the Democrats have complete control of the state legislature as well as the governor's office. How are we doing in California in the wake of Black Lives Matter on setting limits on police abuse of power? Surprisingly, not very well. Let's take the legislative session that followed immediately from the death of George Floyd. Many bills were introduced into the California legislature and none got adopted that session. More were introduced this session and not very much got through this, some did. There are so many things that could be done by state statute to reform police departments in the state. And what are your priorities on that front? Well, I would start by reforming the state civil rights law, the Bain Act, that would allow for suits against police when they violate people's rights. As I said, it's very hard to win a federal civil rights suit, particularly because of the immunity doctrines. I would like to see reforms of the state civil rights law to accomplish things like increase the liability of cities when their officers violate people's rights. It hasn't got adopted by the California legislature. I'd like to see California adopt a law that requires that every police officer record the race of every person stopped. And the reason for that is studies have shown that when the police just have to record the race and they know they have to do so, it decreases racial profiling, lessens the likelihood somebody stopped just for driving while black or driving while brown. I'd like to see the state outlaw some dangerous police practices. I'd like to see the state for the entire California outlaw police use of the chokehold. I'd like to see California eliminate so-called no-knock warrants, except in the most extreme circumstances. A no-knock entry by the police was they come in without announcing that there's a police. And of course, that's dangerous for the police and those who are present. That's what led to the death of Breonna Taylor. The police entered without announcing. A man who was with her thought it was an intruder and took out his gun. The police saw the gun, started shooting, and Breonna Taylor got killed in the crossfire. We can limit the use of no-knock warrants in California by state law or by city ordinance or by police commission action. Another one I'm interested in is the creating a state registry of police officers who've been found guilty of misconduct by their own departments. That's turned out to be a hard thing to achieve. And it's essential. One of the things that I was stunned to learn 20 years ago 
is that there was no registry in Los Angeles to track the disciplinary violations of police officers. I mean, you would think there'd be a file where if an officer had been disciplined for misconduct, we could go and see what it was. Now, the consent decree between the Justice Department and the city of Los Angeles created such a system, but we don't have it statewide. And until this recent bill, we don't have a way of decertifying a police officer who engages in misconduct in one department and then just wants to go work at another department and doesn't reveal the misconduct that led to the firing. Erwin Chemerinsky, his new book is Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. Erwin, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thank you so much, John. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. Now it's time to talk about dirty work and the people who do it, the low-income workers who do our most ethically troubled jobs. For that, we turn to Al Press. He's an award-winning journalist and writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Nation. He's also a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Type Media Center. His new book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. We reached him today in New York City. Al Press, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. Great to be here. Well, the pandemic brought us to appreciate and to honor and cheer for essential workers, especially hospital staff, but also grocery store clerks, garbage collectors, the delivery men who bring us the stuff we've needed over the past year and a half. But you're concerned with an even more hidden class of workers who do jobs that you call morally troubling, people we'd rather not think about, and people who we certainly do not cheer for. Who are they? You're very right that that the term essential jobs almost deserves air quotes in my subtitle because um, I'm not actually saying that were this the just society that many of your listeners would, would like to have, these jobs would be around, but they are around. And I'm talking about the people who run America's prison system, the largest prison system in the world, um, as, as you're aware. I'm talking about people who carry out targeted assassinations in the drone program or people who man the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses. All of those jobs are essential to the American way of life or the prevailing social order. They are not essential in some immutable way that suggests, you know, this is how we would want the world to be. But I do contend in the book that just as we discovered during the pandemic, this sort of convenient arrangement where you had people who, from more privileged professions, white collar uh, professions, bankers, software engineers, who had the, the, the privilege to shelter in place as other people delivered their groceries to them, as other people got the, the goods out of the warehouses for them and, and took great risks. So we have a, as well, a moral division of labor. And it is not an equal division. It is a division whereby people with fewer choices and opportunities are generally delegated what I refer to as these these sullying, degrading jobs. And we can talk more about the specific cases I look I look into. You start uh, your new book, Dirty Work, with a tough case: prison guards. 
Ever since over-incarceration became an issue, we've blamed uh, the prison guards as a key force along with the police, pushing for more prisons, more prisoners, longer sentences, because the lobbying by their unions has been so effective. We record our show in California, which the state reached a kind of tipping point a couple of years ago when taxpayers started spending more money on prisons than on schools. We consider prison guards and their unions to be a really malevolent force in our state. But you suggest another way of looking at prison guards. Yeah, well, I wouldn't deny any of what you just said. It's, it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And I think one other, a, a different way to, um, to think about prison guards is as agents of a society that has built this prison system, not only to warehouse two million, more than two million of our fellow citizens in often extremely brutal and violent conditions, but also to effectively run our mental health system. Because jails and prisons in the United States, in in I think every state at this point, um, the largest mental health institution is not a public hospital. It is not a community health center. It is a jail or a prison. And actually, I begin the book by by looking at the mental health aides who work at a particularly violent prison in Florida, where the incarcerated people, uh, mentally ill people, are being horrifically abused. And this puts those mental health aides in a terrible dilemma, in a position whereby if they say something, if they report what's happening, they're liable to get in trouble and to uh, you know, have the guards retaliate against them. And they rely on these guards for their own security, to open doors for them and to be there in the rec yard. So if, if they challenge the guards, they're, they're risking something. If they don't challenge them, they're going along with human rights abuses. But in the next section, I do indeed complicate the story by looking at the guards themselves. Let's focus here, as you do at the beginning of your book, on the story of the death of one mentally ill man in this Florida prison named Darren Rainey. We know what happened to him only because of heroic action by a couple of whistleblowers on the prison staff who reported on the sadistic behavior of most of the other guards. And the story is truly horrifying, almost unbearable to read about. But you say these Sadistic guards are not to blame for the system, the inhumane system that they are part of. Right. So, and let me just correct one tiny thing that's very important, actually. None of the staff actually reported what happened to Rainey. It was another prisoner, a guy named Harold Hempstead, who reported it, who blew the whistle. And that tells you something about how the system, you know, constrains all of the people in it, including the very well-intentioned mental health aides I, I interviewed. But to, to turn to the guards, you know, I interviewed one guard in particular in depth. I, he shared his diaries with me. He, he, he spoke to me uh, very frankly about um, the brutality that guards in Florida do meet out. And he called these fellow officers, he called them serial bullies. He said, you know, some of these guys just beat inmates, beat prisoners, uh, you know, in, in a way that's just a kind of cruelty he'd never witnessed before. And this guy was a military veteran, as a lot of uh, uh, corrections officers are. Um, so here you're thinking, okay, the way you just described them as this malevolent force is, is exactly accurate. But he went on to say, you know, the people of Florida get what they pay for when, when you talk about what goes on in, their prison, in the prisons. You know, why do these abuses happen? Well, you could, you could attribute it to character flaws, but you could also look at the fact that Florida spends 
uh, it has the third largest prison system in the country. And at the time that I was writing and these abuses were occurring, it spent the second least on mental health services in the country. So what do you have? You have a jail and prison system that is overcrowded. It is often filled with people with severe mental health problems who are cycling through. And Bill Curtis, the guard I interviewed, like a lot of the guards, get no training to deal with this particular population. And indeed, if you asked a psychiatrist or asked a psychologist, you know, where would you least want to take a person in the throes of a mental health crisis, they would likely say, you know, a jail or a prison. And yet that's what happens. And so surprise, surprise, you combine a lack of rehabilitative services, a lack of health services, overcrowded conditions, and by the way, a pared down staff, thanks to then Governor Rick Scott, who of course today is Senator Scott, um, who cut the prison budget significantly. And as Curtis said to me, you know, when you're an officer in, that condi- in, that, in those situations, you learn there's only one way to control the place, and that way is through brute force. And this is sort of the message that society sends, but it's all done and hidden. It's all, it's all sort of veiled from, from scrutiny, not seen. And then when a scandal like the Rainey case erupts, people say, oh, look at those sadistic guards. Well, I'm saying in the book, don't look just at those guards. Look at the, society, the social conditions that gave rise to this system and the shared responsibility that all of us have. But let's be clear, the primary victims of this kind of dirty work, in your view, are not the people who do it. The primary victims are the people they're brutalizing. But you are concerned about what you call the moral and emotional wounds that dirty workers sustain, hidden injuries, they've been called in a famous uh, book from from their work. Uh, Tell us a little more about that. You know, a major theme of my book is is the concept of moral injury, the idea that um, if you are doing a job that requires you to meet out violence or that requires you to um, survey villagers through uh, drones that at any moment could leave innocent civilians dead. Um, And you see that, but the society that put you there doesn't. That those jobs carry a psychic toll that is very hard, I think almost impossible to capture in statistics but that is very important in measuring a worker's sense of self-esteem, the degradation they experience, the lack of dignity. You know, Biden said when he accepted the Democratic nomination, he was telling a story about his father. And he said, you know, uh, his father told him, uh, you know, Joey, a a job isn't just uh, a paycheck. It's also a source of dignity. It's about a person's place in the community. Those are the themes I'm looking at and asking, you know, if you're the, the, the prison guards I spoke to, uh, by and large, were people who wanted to do something else. They took a, what, what is called a job of last resort, and they took it maybe because it had benefit. In Florida, the pay is very low, but it does have benefits. So as one of the, one of the guards told me, you know, it was either a little higher salary and no benefits or this job with benefits. But with all of the, and I would say moral costs that go along with it. And, and you're very right that I by no means am saying they're the primary victims. Just as in, in the section of the book on drones, I make it clear that the primary victims of an errand drone strike are innocent civilians, are, are, are people like those killed in the strike as the U.S. was leaving Afghanistan. But there is a second secondary set of victims, I think, that, that in a way are both perpetrators and victims, and, and that is these dirty workers. And there's a special case in the prisons, which is prison guards 
who are people of color. Many of the prisoners, of course, are people of color, and there are also guards who are people of color. And a lot of people's first response would be, well, how can they brutalize their own people? This is another question you've looked into. I interview a black officer, a black security guard, who on one hand told me about the racism of his fellow officers and about being stopped on the way to work uh, and pulled over repeatedly. And even when he had his badge ready to show the cop, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm an officer too. It didn't matter. He was just viewed as, as uh, a black man who was a suspect in, in the officer's eyes. So all of that is true. And yet at the same time, you know, it's, it's quite striking during the era of mass incarceration, states like Florida and, and in other parts of the country, the proportion of the prison workforce um, the correctional workforce that is Black and or Latino um, increased significantly, as did, by the way, the, the percentage of the, of the workforce that is female. And in the particular prison I'm looking at, Dade, a, a lot of the workforce, the, the frontline guards, were female Black officers who were working and, and, and often coming from the same neighborhoods that some of the incarcerated people came from very depressed, very um, few opportunities for jobs. And, you know, again, this doesn't in any way take away from the, you know, it doesn't excuse the fact that there, the violence happens and, and, and folks should be held accountable, but it suggests that um, the powerful and the privileged have found a very convenient way to delegate this work to people lower on the social ladder than themselves, and not only to delegate the work, but, but in a way to to keep both the workers and the work itself invisible. And there's another set of hard-to-see uh, workers that I'm very interested in that you write about, the slaughterhouse workers, who are some of the most degraded, oppressed, and hard-to-find uh, workers in our society. The slaughterhouses have been moved out to remote uh, rural areas specifically to get them away from the big cities where they were uh, more visible. I remember that there was a time when this was a more honorable job. From the 40s to the 60s, slaughterhouse workers had a strong progressive union, the United Packing House Workers, which fought for and won a national contract, which gave them not only high wages and safe working conditions, but this was also a union that was famous for its fight for racial integration of their workplace and social justice in the nation. They they got blacks appointed shop stewards. They supported the march on Washington. Then in the early 70s, this union was broken. The union workers were fired. The line was speeded up. The slaughterhouses were moved to remote areas and undocumented immigrants were brought in and exploited mercilessly. But this history suggests it wasn't always like that. And, and that in turn suggests it doesn't have to be. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You've done a great job of sketching the history there that, that, that sort of starts with, you know, from Upton Sinclair, I trace it myself to, you know, some of the brutalities he wrote about. And very interestingly, if you go back and read The Jungle, you'll see all kinds of passages where he's talking about not just the injuries that the workers suffer, but the feeling of degradation, the dirtiness. You know, they, he he, there's a passage in the book where he talks about you can't even find a place to wash your hands. You know, and that's not just about getting it's it's about this sense of being stigmatized. Right. You just you're in there killing you with the blood and the, and the gore of this. But as you say, the, 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 there was a very strong union movement that didn't necessarily make the job any less bloody, but certainly did make it less dangerous, certainly did make it less degrading, uh, certainly made it better paying. 
that fell apart in the 70s through a very concerted corporate strategy led by a company then called IBP. And they started importing strike breakers from Mexico, basically, in, in Nebraska and in other places. And that low-wage strategy took over the industry and is, is especially apparent in the, the sector I look at, which is poultry slaughterhouses. So I know your purpose in this book is not to propose new legislation that will uh, solve this problem, but it does raise the question, especially with prison guards, how much of this is necessary? Of course, there's been a movement led by Angela Davis to abolish prisons so that no one is subject to this kind of brutality again. The question really is how much of this, the dirty work you write about really is necessary? And if so, does it have to be that dirty? I hope there's a conversation on, on all, about all the forms of work I write about can be opened up. You know, I also write about uh, dirty tech and, and you know, the, the gadgets that we all use ha- has a form of dirty work that, that has just been um, outsourced and, and taken offshore, namely the mining that goes on for cobalt in the Congo uh, with child labor and brutal conditions and all kinds of middlemen, uh, these companies that sell from one to another, and that eventually makes its way to Apple and Microsoft and all the companies that we all patronize and patronize. And, and I, I should say, you know, that, that's the point of the book. I'm trying to, to connect this dirty work to our lives to show how, in fact, we rely on it, whether we see it or not. And so then that begs a question, well, what can you do about it? And my conclusion is, and I suggest very strongly, you can't do that much about it as an individual consumer. I mean, yeah, you could you could stop eating meat. You could decide not to buy these gadgets, but someone else will keep buying them. And you know, there are there are plenty of customers um, lining up. Uh, the fast food chains will continue to profit. So the only real solutions are political, and I would say are collective. Just as as the responsibility for dirty work is shared, so too any any way of altering this work has to be a sort of shared endeavor, a collective enterprise. We together share the responsibility for the harm done by dirty workers and for the emotional injuries they suffer. And we together can change what we require of them. The book is Dirty Work. The author is A.L. Press. A.L., thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.